Hey, everybody. Thank you for checking out the Broke Down Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode number 87. As always, I'll remind you that the Broke Down Podcast is a member of Osiris. Osiris Media is making great things to bring you closer to the great things that you love. One of those things right now is the new podcast, Undermine, in which we, and I do mean we, undertake to tell the story of the band Fish. The first two episodes are out now, with episode three coming out tomorrow, so subscribe on your favorite podcast app and get all the details on Undermine and more at OsirisPod.com. So what's in the news? Dave's Pick 37 landed here at Broke Down Pod headquarters, and as I expected, it's outstanding. You've heard me rave about it enough already, but I have to say, one more time before I move on forever, I love it. Okay, let's talk about new music now, shall we? Drew Gardner, member of Elkhorn and previous guest on this show, has a new album coming out. It's self-titled. Let me let me correct that. It's titled S slash T, which is how we typically indicate that it's self-titled, but then it would be Drew Gardner, right? Fooled me for a minute there. Anyways, it's set to be released by Eiderdown Records, both digitally and as a cassette. And if you like Elkhorn, and I think you should, you'll like what's happening here. Excellent pensive instrumental tunes featuring Drew on electric guitar, Andy Cush of Garcia Peoples on bass, and on drums, Ryan Jewell of Mosses, and a ton of other great projects, including some Elkhorn, Riley Walker, Chris Forsyth, and probably a few other things we've discussed on here before. This is from pre-COVID in-person sessions, and the chemistry, telepathy, are evident as you listen to the conversation between the instruments. That will be out in early March and is available for pre-order now at eiderdownrecords.bandcamp.com. It's really great. I highly recommend it. Now, on to new business. On this episode, we will be talking with a special guest, a fellow fan and student of the Grateful Dead, Lorian. I know her from Twitter, where she's at Dreamflower where we've had some fine chats about all sorts of Grateful Dead things. So we sat down together on the internet and talked about this great run of shows from February 71 at the Capitol Theater in Portchester, New York. Those shows were 50 years ago this week, folks. So we're going to get into the music and that whole ESP thing, too. Right after the chat, we'll launch into some choice selections from those shows that she helped me pick. So I'm going to remind you now that you can find me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at BrokedownPod. The blog is a fine place to look for the playlists, as well as any links I might mention, like how to scoop that Drew Gardner album. And you can also leave comments on the episode posts. Find that at brokedownpodcast.blogspot.com. Speaking of comments, if you have not already reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts and that is a platform that you use, please consider rating and reviewing the show. Well, that's it for me, though. Until next time, be well. Lorian, thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to talk with you about, well, uh, to get to know you better here, and then also talk to you about these uh, Porchester shows from 50 years ago, which is is crazy, right? That's that's a long time. So yeah, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to talk about these shows. I love the cap, and obviously, I'm a huge Deadhead. So yeah, it'd be fun. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we always have to start out getting to know our guests, and we've talked a bit on Twitter about the dead and about podcasts and about all kinds of things, but really, I don't know that much about how you got into Grateful Dead, where you were radicalized, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> so maybe you could uh, start with that for me. 
Yeah, for sure. So I was not at all a deadhead until I guess about five or six years ago now. I was always dead friendly. Um, I grew up in Connecticut. So we, we would drive up to Woodstock, the town Woodstock a lot when I was a teenager. And it was kind of before Woodstock was like, bougie the way it is now and it was just like head shops and record stores and you know so there was I was exposed to the Grateful Dead but I really only knew American Beauty and Working Instead and I remember I drove cross country I guess it was 2002 and I listened to American Beauty a lot on that drive but I had never been exposed to the live shows I just didn't know the live stuff and so a few years ago, there was a guy who was trying to get me into it. And I was sort of like resistant. I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I like them, but, you know, I'm not that into it. And then <laughs> I just started exploring it on my own. And it's very cliche. But the first live show that I listened to was Cornell. It was 5877. And there was... Um, Jerry's second guitar solo in Brown Eyed Women. I was driving and I, I think I actually pulled over and I was just, uh, there was something about that particular, you know, I think there's a moment for everybody. Sure. That was mine. And I was just like, holy, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, I did not know the Grateful Dead sounded like this. So. But at that point, like the dude was gone. So, and none of my real life friends at that point were deadheads. So I really turned to social media. Um, and it's been interesting kind of growing into being a deadhead, mostly via Twitter for the past, you know, five or six years. Um, and just a lot of people that I found and like, asked questions. David Lemieux was certainly one of them. I pestered him with questions and he was always lovely to me. And I mean, I was such a noob. Like I remember saying like, Hey, I heard, (laughs) I heard this song called dark star that I really liked. And now I'm like, I want to die that I said that. to (laughs) David. But you know, I was um, initially some of like the how do I say this kindly? Some of the elder tribe of deadheads, when I first, first came on, they, they weren't incredibly welcoming. Um, someone okay. actually said to me at one point, like, if, you, if you've never seen Jerry, then leave the room. And I was like, okay, see you later. And, but well, that, that's not a room you want to hang out in then, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so I did leave that room and then I kind of, I kind of found like the dead nerds um, that have really like embraced me and taken me in like Jesse Jarno and Mr. Completely thoughts on the dead 21st century dead, like our, you know, corner of deadhead Twitter. (laughs) Um, And I just started reading everything I could read. I read the biographies. I read um, lost life dead, you know, Corey who writes that grateful seconds, like, I just read everything I could get my hands on. That's kind of how I absorb like biosmosis is reading because I'm a research nerd. So Ah, you're in the right corner then because there's there's so much. 
And, I found uh, the right tribe eventually. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think that you've used the word tribe twice, and I think they're uh, for better and worse. Uh, deadheads are very tribal. Um, yeah. Sometimes we uh, circle the wagons, which is maybe the in inaccurate metaphor, but it's like the the change in your pocket stacks itself eventually. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so, so do deadheads. This like segues nicely into the cap because you know I had I had fallen so in love with the Grateful Dead that and I had never seen Jerry perform live. I was even hesitant to go see Dead and Company, <laughs> but I did. Wow. I, I saw my first Dead and Company show in 2017 in Hartford, and cool. I just loved the environment. You know, it it was unlike. I mean, I've, I'm a music person. I've been to a ton of shows, but it just wasn't the jam band scene, quote unquote. And it's just unlike anything you've ever felt before. So I started going to see Dead & Company, but there was something about the first time that I saw shows at the Cap, which it was Phil's birthday shows in 2019, Nice. And I couldn't go all three nights, but I went to the last two nights. And there's just something about that place. I know everybody says it, but like, unless you've been there, it, there's just, there's just a magic to the cap. And I don't know. I, what I imagine Grateful Dead shows were like sort of further back, you know, the ones that I didn't get to see, I felt closer to that in the cap then and that's certainly like i love the dead and company shows i will continue to go see them people can say what they want i love it i'm i'm gonna go but the cap is just like i don't know it's it's a level it's a level <laughs> it's well, a i mean dead and company in an arena or a baseball stadium or a shed uh you know they're doing a very different thing than any band is going to do at a place like the cap right. i haven't been to that venue which is a crime and i shouldn't admit it on this episode but <laughs> um but i've been to a lot of rooms and and some of them have a vibe and some of them don't and right. uh, yeah when you get into one that has you know the vibe you know, you can tell some stuff has gone down in these room in this room. You know, these these floors have felt some feet. These walls have witnessed some some things. And uh, yeah. I think everybody everybody says it just as you did that the cap is one of those spaces. It really is. It really is. You just feel it. You just like feel Jerry when you're there. I know that's the cheesiest thing. That's great. <laughs> you really do. Yeah. You really We're here do. for that. You know, I like cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah so let's talk about these shows a little bit um a lot of bit i mean there's a lot to talk about here so they played what is it uh february 18th 19th 20 21st 23rd and 24th in 1971 at the capitol right. theater port chester new york uh right. they, they were billed with new writers jerry was playing with new writers at the time Mm -hmm. um, let's see, the 18th, the 19th, and the 21st have all been released. The 18th was released last year. Um, the full show was released last year, I should say. Right, for the as, 50th anniversary, yeah. Right, yeah. of American Beauty. And then the 19th was Three from the Vault. And the 21st was released with the Working Man's Dead uh, 50th mm -hmm. anniversary reissue. Mm -hmm. 
the entire run, the reason we have these tapes, and they had great tapes to reissue here and Three from the Vault, is they recorded it for the uh, Skull and Roses album, but they didn't use any of it for that album. And then uh, I guess they, they, they went back to New York a short time later, and they, they did it again. And uh, <laughs> and I guess they got what they needed that time. Right. Um, so we have some firsts on this run, like the first night mm -hmm. um, is got the first Bertha, first greatest story, first loser, first playing in the band, first Wharf Rat, and also Mickey's last show. Mickey's until last show. Yeah. 1974. Yeah. So I, I went back. I was I was looking in um, Long Strange Trip, Dennis McNally's of oh, course cool. biography, just kind of reading, you know, back for, from what he was saying, and it's interesting. He so I'm going to quote him. He says, Please. "Life at the Life at the Capitol was extremely eventful." In the course of a week's residence, the dead helped with a scientific experiment, lost a drummer, added a lyricist, and introduced eight new songs, seven of them original. Johnny B. Good, of course, being the one that was not a dead original. Um, but he talks about Mickey just being in a really bad state at that point. And of course, these were the shows where they did this ESP experiment that was kind of bizarre and just off the wall and so very Grateful Dead. Oh, yeah. I really but, want to get into the ESP thing uh, in a minute, but I, I'd, I'd like to like wander around the music for a second at some of these other events because I want to focus on the ESP because apparently I read some notes. It works better if you focus on it. Um, <laughs> sorry. This, the lyricist thing you mentioned is a really good, you know, that Dennis mentioned that you brought up there is a really good point. This is where um, uh, John Barlow was backstage and the mm -hmm. now infamous encounter with Robert Hunter is uh you want him you got him or something yeah, to that effect. Him, he's yours he, yeah, just, he like handed Bobby to Barlow and Hunter was just done like that was yeah. that was it this is um, great. If anybody listened to the Deadcast and uh, listened to the episode on the Sugar Mag where they talk about the writing process of that song between mm. back and forth between Hunter and uh, Bobby, you'll understand why Hunter was done. I mean, the result is good. The result is really good, but hard on Bob Hunter, I think. Absolutely. So, uh, let's see what else. Yeah, so Mickey, he played the first show, and then I know Bobby, I think it's the the 21st, you can hear Bobby say that, uh, you know, our, uh, Mickey, uh, we're down to one drummer. Mickey was, uh, wasn't feeling well. And, uh, right. Well, what, what I was going to say before is, uh, Dr. Krippner, who was involved with the whole ESP thing, he actually, according to McNally, he hypnotized Mickey that first night so that he could play. So on the 18th, Mickey was in such bad shape that I guess, you know, Krippner like did some, hoodoo on him so that he could perform at the show and after that he just he he bailed and that was wow. that was like that the, for a while that's like the robbie robertson the uh the band's first gig at i think it was winterland first gig as the band well after around the first record uh robbie had such great severe stage fright which is weird because they'd been you know a rock group touring the world for years uh, he had such severe stage fright. They brought a hypnotist out to uh, to whammy him so he could uh, go on stage and play. Oh wow! Which I is I... where the song "Stage Fright" comes from, apparently. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Very cool. 
the, the mind meanders sometimes, but it always comes back to something. Right, um, right. Well, and of course, you know, the, according to Barlow and, and pretty much everyone who was there, the cocaine use in these particular shows was like at a pinnacle which is saying something for the Grateful Dead. So um, <laughs> it's interesting because Barlow describes this as this time it, it, for the band is kind of being really dark. And I, I just, I don't really hear that, I guess in certain parts of the music, but what, whatever was happening, I think wasn't carrying over on stage, which was good. So. Right. I mean, it drove Mickey out. Mickey, you know, they talk about Mickey under the sort of the the weight of the guilt of his father having ripped off the band. He stuck right. around for a while and then mm-hmm. sank into his uh, his self and his grief and had to step away. Uh, but at the same time, this this band, this little Grateful Dead group that we have right here is rockin'. Yeah, um, they. Uh, I, I almost forgot to mention Ned Lagan sits in the first night too. He does, yeah. Which is, yeah. He's not apparently not on everything. There's some technical tuning difficulties with his, you know, bleeps and bloops. But you can like you can hear him on playing in the band and right. a couple other things. Um, and I, we probably ought to talk about the beautiful jam. Yes. which is the so-called beautiful jam in the uh, Dark Star, Warfrat Dark Star from the first right. night. Um, it's lovely. There's a great bit from the Grateful Dead hour that's worth digging up where David Gans played it for Phil. And Phil is just agog at what he's listening to and yeah. tears up. Yeah, that's what I've read, that he actually had like tears in his eyes when he heard it. Yeah, yeah, it's- which is... Phil gets to be a deadhead for a minute there, and uh, mm-hmm. he could sit, you know, where we sit for a minute and actually feel that from yeah. our side. Um, a lot of musicians can't do that. <laughs> like, they can only listen critically to what they've done. Right. So it's hard to remove yourself, I think. It definitely is. I also, I often say if, if I were ever forced to choose one song by the dead to say that it's my favorite it's bird song and so the 19th was the first bird song and it's really cool how just over the course of performing it like two or three times by the third time they perform it it's it's just morphing into that like sort of dreamy melancholy you know the version that i love and that i know best whereas when it starts on 219, it's like a little discombobulated, you know, it's a little, yeah. but it's like there, I, I love being able to hear that process because it's so rare to be able to hear your favorite band, like from the first time they played on stage and how it evolves. And obviously we have all the tapers to thank for that. But. Right. And it happens so quickly too. Like yeah. I, I, I have notes about the bird songs here as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, even the 219 one, um, you know, I kind of like it, but the two by 220, it's the second performance and it's like, this one's really pretty. And they just yeah. kind of, they, they're really drawing it together through the run. Um, which is another thing worth noting is there's a lot of, a lot of repetition through this run. They're working mm-hmm. a lot of the same material probably because of the album intent. 
but right. man, they're playing it all so well. Like every version of Cumberland is tight, super tight. Yeah. You know, they play a lot of the Pigpen songs. You know, you get your King Bee and you get your Good Lovin' and you get, there's a, a 26 minute love light on mm -hmm. the 20th. <laughs> yeah. Like the rap in that one, it just kills me. Do you deal used furniture? Do you deal new <laughs> furniture? You know, like that whole bit, like I, I, I yep. couldn't begin to do justice to any of that, uh, but it's so cool. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, Pig is in good form. Uh, he is. He is. There's. There's also. Um, there's one morning dew. I think it's just the one on the twenty third. That's mm -hmm. really nice. It's a good. Really morning. heavy as it should be. A good morning dew is heavy, and um, and there's also on the twenty fourth they play Minglewood for like, the second to last time of the early era of this band. So they play it only twice in seventy one. They played it on. They play it later on the. 29th of April, which is the last Fillmore East show. And then they don't play it again until 76, um, which, you know, it's weird to think. I mean, this is, this song goes all the way back. Right. And, uh, then they just put it on the shelf, but it rips. It's a great hot version. And then right after it is trucking, which is, well, it's the next big thing, right? So Yeah, the uh, truckings from this run are just like full out, like rocking, just full throttle, which I love. I love. Absolutely. And, and yeah, they do it just about every night. There's some going down the roads, some uh, other ones that are really great. Uh, yeah. The other one, uh, the cryptical and other one from, I guess the 19th, well, it's cryptical drums. Other one. Right. That's a really good one. It's that's a proper one. Really? Yeah. That's a proper one. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're great. And uh, we'll, I, I will, put together a sampler of the stuff that hasn't been released uh, for, you know, for later on for everybody to, to rock out to. And we'll probably have to get one of these truckings and another one and a bird song. And I don't know what else, but we'll figure it out later. Um, you have any other highlights we should get to talk about before we, you know, get into the, the really weird stuff. Of course. I'm excited about talking about the ESP stuff. Because... Let's get into it. Let's go. So tell, why don't you, I know you've done um, a good bit of research on this and, and I'm a skeptic, right? So uh, I, I'm not the guy who should introduce this concept. I think, um, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody, I, I think many of our listeners probably know to some degree what we're talking about when, we, when like when you see in your dead base, it says ESP show, but right. maybe you could uh, shine some light on it for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so ESP just is extrasensory perception, like a sixth sense. So basically it's telepathy, psychometry, it's collective conscious, it's being able to communicate without any verbal cues or being in the same physical space. And this, uh, this guy, Dr. Stanley Krippner, apparently he met Mickey at a, a birthday party of a mutual friend and he was a very well-established psychiatrist and he got into a conversation with Jerry about consciousness and, you know, whatever they were talking about. And I guess Jerry made enough of an impression on him that he wanted to try this. So basically what they did, so in, in telepathy experiments, there will be 
a giver, someone who's like sending out the signals and a receiver. And so what they decided to do was make the audience for these shows at the Capitol Theater, the senders. So they, they were the givers. So what they did was every night at 11.30, I think, I'm not sure if it was like in the transition because of course the new writers of Purple Sage opened for, for these shows. So they would, 11.30 comes around and they had like this whole system of very secretive um, way of picking certain images, certain artistic images that were in envelopes and there were two envelopes and they would flip a coin and somebody at the show would like hand it to the, they put it up on the slide projector. There was so, uh, apparently no other light show for these shows. Right. Also. So this is the right. only like other than looking at the band or looking at the, you know, back of your eyelids or whatever. There's no other visual stimulus being projected. Yeah. This, this is all the audience is seeing. So the slides come up and it says... You are about to participate in an ESP experiment. Now, by like 11.30, you're probably well into your dose, right? So, so I could just imagine like being in this audience and being like, what is happening right now? Right. So, there, there apparently there are notes in the like in the experiment description that su that suggest that, you know, they observed the people who were at the show doing the slides and so I observed that the audience was um definitely loose at this point right um by the music or other means <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah so the they would basically just told the audience in a few seconds you will see a picture try using your esp to send this picture to a person named malcolm Vicent. i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right but um so what they did was they had they had this gentleman, Malcolm Bessent. He was at a medical center. Um, I think it was about 20 minutes away from where they were. 45 miles away in the Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. And then they also had a woman who was in her home in Brooklyn, but they didn't tell the audience about her. So I guess that was some sort of a control where they wanted to see if it made a difference if... You know, she would pick up the signals at the same rate as Malcolm would if it made a difference. So the audience didn't know about her name, I think, was Parisi, Paris. So they told the audience about Malcolm, though. And what's really interesting is that after all was said and done, Malcolm, the audience knowing about him and trying to consciously, you know, project or send these images to him um four out of six times he was he was correct whereas the woman who was in her bed in brooklyn who the audience was not aware of that was also participating she only got it right one out of six times so this experiment was actually published in medical journals later on in 1973 and they carried out several other experiments like this afterwards. I guess, I guess the heart of it was that extrasensory perception, they were thinking that the stimulation of the music and the crowd and the collective conscious 
would have a bigger impact than when it was just one person trying to send it to one other person. So based on this experiment, it kind of worked, you know. Well, you know, they, um, one of the bits in the summary is the, you know, the question of, is it, is it the, the experiment does not prove that 2000 agents are better than a single agent. Future work is needed to explore this possibility and which I, I think is, you know, it's good science to recognize that you don't, they don't know if it, if it worked because it would it work right. if one person's listening to this music or what have you. Also worth noting that they had previously done, um, they had previously done some laboratory experiments involving the Grateful Dead's music, and they had also done another concert with the uh, was the the Holy Moldo Rounders back in I want to say it was nineteen seventy. Um, I don't have I've lost that place in my notes, but you know, so they've they've tried this before. And had kind of, I don't think they had significant results, but um, one of the subjects, one of the people who was listening, though, was Richie Havens, the musician Richie Havens. Yes, um, yes. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, I think it's 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 wild that the results for uh, Mr. Besant, is that how you pronounce it? As long as we do it the same way, it doesn't matter if we get it right, right? It, that his results were uh, statistically, you know, significant. Uh, while hers were not, uh, Miss Paris, uh, I, 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 that's just wild. I mean, like uh, the description of the 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 nineteenth, they did a image called the seven spinal chakras. It was randomly selected, mm-hmm. and it pictures uh, the painting shows a man in the lotus position practicing logic meditation. All seven sh- seven chakras are vividly colored, and they're right along the spinal column, and his that what the guy described was, you know, I was thinking about rocket ships, remembering a dream I had about an energy box and a spinal column. Yeah. He said, I was talking to this guy who said he'd invented a way of using solar energy. And he showed me this box to catch the light from the sun, which was what we all needed to generate and store the energy. So, so so he met Elon Musk and (laughs) pretty much, I don't know. So, yeah, that's wild, though. I mean, the, the fact that it, it you know, uh, dreams logic doesn't really apply, but the fact that he came around and landed on the spinal column is just kind of remarkable. So. It it really is. I, you know, I think this was obviously a really interesting and and very like early seventies thing to do. Of course. Oh yeah. What I found interesting though is that in the context of the experiment, they don't really like make any allowances for the drugs <laughs> that the audience was on. I mean, basically, you know, the fact that a lot of that audience, again, we're, we're guessing and there's no way to quantify that, right? So it's not a statistic that you can really measure unfortunately yeah there's, but, there's no real control yeah there's no really real control for that but i just i i think it it's an interesting question that it brings up is that you know if conservatively 50 percent of that audience was on lsd that night 
did that make a difference? Is, is there some like level of consciousness that they achieved because of that? Like, was that a factor? That's me speculating. That's just me asking the question. I don't know if I have an opinion one way or the other, but I think it's an interesting question that, you know. Yeah, I think we could talk our way around this for a long time and not really land <laughs> on anything conclusive. Um, <laughs> but it, it definitely is a good question. And I, w I wonder if they went further uh, and tried it again or tried it with singular subjects or, you know, where their, where their studies went. But I will say mm -hmm. that these results do lend some credence to the possibility that something's going on. And that's pretty cool. And the fact that the Grateful Dead were involved just makes all the sense, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, Dr. Krippner has published a lot of studies and a lot of books. Um, he studied acupuncture and Carolian photography a lot, which I, I don't have any knowledge, any deep knowledge of either one of those things. But, you know, his, his books are the realms of healing, the energies of consciousness. So he was definitely someone who was exploring um, the interface of consciousness, energy and matter is another one of his, his publications. So he, um, I didn't get to read any of these, but they're certainly interesting. Um, he stuff also did a lot with, with dream work later, so... Certainly stuff that could be of interest to uh, people out there listening to this stuff. And all of this around some Grateful Dead shows and a killer run of Grateful Dead shows. Um, before I let you go, is there anything else you should tell me? Is there anything else we need to know? Uh, what Do you have um, a favorite show that we haven't, you know, we didn't really get into that when we were talking about your, your background as a Dead fan. Uh, is there... I mean, you started with Cornell. It's all downhill from there, right? <laughs> well, actually, the the cat shows in nineteen seventy are some of my favorites. I, oh, I really, I really love that run of shows. Um, you know, again, I know it's very cliche, but one from the vault is, is a huge show for me. That that's probably my go to show. Like when I'm when I'm driving, when I'm cleaning, when I'm <laughs> doing anything. Yeah. It's a show I know really well. Um, I also love a lot of the shows from 73, um, February, October, 73, some, some standouts there for me. And actually 87 is, is something recent for me that I've been venturing more into, you know, when I, when I first started, I tried to listen chronologically. So like I started with 1966 and I tried to listen to every available show in order and that was like my plan and I got to I had just started Europe 72 and I was like you know this is kind of repetitive I'm looking for something a little different and somebody recommended to me I think it was March 22nd of 1990 it was one of the Dozen at the Nick shows oh, cool. and the first time I heard that show I was appalled I was like this is not my Grateful Dead like what happened you know, of course <laughs> Now I love it, but at first I was so used to like that early, you know, you have your psychedelic dead, your cowboy dead, your jazzy kind of Europe 72 dead. It was just a grateful dead that I had not heard. And it was, for me, it was an acquired taste, but 
but now I really like 87 and 1990. I can't even imagine that kind of that shock of jumping (laughs) from the one to, you know, without really the, uh, the context or the experience in that listening to that era. I I can't even imagine what that must be like. Right. 87. So you're like a push comes to shove fan and stuff, right? Well, I'm kidding. I, I like that song though. So you you, you can um, say no, and I won't judge you. But you could say yes, and I'll be like right on. <laughs> I think I'll I'll try to stay neutral on that point. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. But, um... All right. Well, uh, Lorraine, this has been a lot of fun. We are gonna play a bunch of Grateful Dead after this, and you're gonna get some credit for all of it, uh, and well deserved. And I appreciate all the research you did on the ESP stuff, because like I said, I'm not the guy to present that, but it is very, a very interesting sort of footnote in, in Grateful Dead history. So thank you. Thank Thank you you for having me. It was, it was fun to talk about and yeah. Can't wait to listen. Yeah. It's been a blast. Thank you. Certainly hope that none of you are as quite as hungover as certain select members of our band are.
here I am and I'm a man up on the scene I can give you what you want but you got to come home with me I got a whole lot of good old loving and I got some in store When I get through throwing it on you, you got to come back for more Boys and things will come by the dozen Ain't nothing but ducks no Pretty little thing, let me light you can come, mama. I'm so hard to handle now, yes I've been. Action speaks louder than words, cause I'm a man with a great experience. I know you got you another man, but I can love you better than him. Take my hand and don't be afraid, I'm gonna prove every word I say. When I advertise my love, I want you to place your head with me. Boys and ten will come by the dozen. Ain't nothing but drugs stolen. Pretty little thing, let me light your candle, cause mama, I'm so hard to handle now. Yes, I am. Give it to me. I got to have it. Show me your love, and it's all I need. Early in the morning, I just might just get to be just a little bit of taste. I hold a handle sometimes, so I got to have your love. You think you think you've done control.
Baby, here I am and I'm a main up on the scene And I can give you what you want But you got to come home with me And I've got a whole lot of good old love But I got some in store When I get through throwing it on me You got to come back for more Everybody's praying 
so sweet is passing by Don't you cry 
my keys out on Main Street. Chicago, New York, Detroit, and it's on the same street. Typical city and bumping a typical daydream. Hang it up and see what tomorrow brings. Dallas, got a soul machine. Houston, too close to New Orleans.
Yeah. 
wander downtown Nowhere to go but just hang around
20 minutes, you know, buck and a quarter, 15, 20 minutes, ain't, you know, ain't nothing. Just get a little slipping and sliding. But the reason that he got it, and the reason she was so nice, and the reason he liked her so much, I want to tell you now, I guess I will. 
Yeah. 